0: Hello, friends. This is Mark Heffley, and this is the first of our Lenten study series on the Psalms. The idea behind the series is to give all those who might otherwise be too busy to make it to an in-person study and another opportunity to dive deeper into the Word. And we're choosing the Psalms because they're often overlooked, but really they're the lifeblood of the church's prayer life. They're also the most cited work in the New Testament. Little trivia. And throughout the ages, the churches turned to the Psalms in order to converse with God, to find spiritual nourishment, moral teaching, and even to discover more of the richness of Christ. But of course, the book of Psalms is quite large at 150 of them. So this Lent, we won't be trying to get through all of them. Rather, we'll just focus on those Psalms that we'll be praying together at the upcoming Sunday Mass. So each week, I'll release uh, brief reflections on that upcoming psalm. And the hope is that you'll find at least one thing in here that you can take to prayer and that your prayer will make Lent all the more fruitful. Now a quick note before we begin. So in Mass, the church gives us only select verses uh, and they give us these verses from the NAB, the New American Bible Translation. Now, in these reflections, I'll be walking us through the whole psalm, and I'll also be using both the NAB and the ESV, the English Standard Version translations. So if you can, I'd recommend having your Bible open up as we go. All right, let's dive in. So this first Sunday of Lent, also Ash Wednesday, it's the same psalm, we're given Psalm 51. The first thing to notice about this psalm is the superscript. Many of the psalms have these. They name either an author or at least someone associated with the psalm, and some superscripts connect the psalm with a specific episode in the life of David, like ours does. So ours says, to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Now there's some healthy debate about these superscripts, but we can at least say that a layer of meaning or depth to this psalm comes to light only when we situate it within the, the, the narrative context, the this, this story of David and Bathsheba. And, and the story is quite a doozy. So let's uh, recap it. So David was the second king of Israel. And he's hailed in scripture as a man after God's heart. So he is a pretty upstanding guy. But David messed up in a pretty big way. So one day he was sitting around and he sees Bathsheba bathing on her roof. And so he sends for her, he sleeps with her, and then he orchestrates the death of her husband. Uh, so pretty bad stuff. After all of this, the prophet Nathan, and this is what our superscript is referring to, the prophet Nathan comes to him and tells him this story, this parable about a man who uh, stole another man's only lamb. Now, of course, Nathan is referring to David. But David doesn't pick up on it, and in a burst of ironic rage, David demands that that man be put to death, only to hear Nathan reply, you are that man. Alright, so this is the backdrop of our psalm. David is committed not only adultery, but murder as well, and... Given the fact that Nathan doesn't call for Bathsheba to be punished, he he doesn't even speak of Bathsheba needing to be forgiven. Uh, this implies that she did not go to David willingly, and this makes things all the worse for David. If anyone has fallen from grace, it's him. And yet herein lies the beauty of this psalm. By placing this prayer on the lips of David after all that he did, The Holy Spirit gives us the words to pray and the courage to pray, no matter what awful things we've done, which is pretty appropriate for the beginning of Lent, right? So the psalm then begins, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. The translation of Mass says, have mercy on me, O God, in your goodness. It doesn't matter what translation we go with. The the key here is that the psalmist is placing his hopes not on his own merits, but on the hesed of God this is a constant theme throughout the Old Testament. God's chesed denotes his faithful love for his people. So here the psalmist is crying out and appealing to this chesed, have mercy on me because of your great love and your abundant mercy. In the same way, we're invited to begin this season of repentance by directing God Not to all of our good deeds or to our challenging fasts and tough penances, but to God's own hesed. His forgiveness is a pure gift, not anything we could possibly earn. In the beginning, we also see that the psalm starts off with a request, have mercy on me. If we go through the psalm and count up all the requests, we notice that there's 21 of them, which is pretty significant. Um... He says, have mercy on me, blot out, wash me, cleanse me, etc. Now, 21 is a multiple of seven, which often signifies completeness or uh, perfection. So the psalmist is intentional in giving us 21 requests. The very number as a multiple of seven uh, denotes a complete reordering of life. The psalmist wants nothing less than to be completely changed by God's merciful hesed. And by placing the psalm at the beginning of Lent, the church invites us to make this same prayer, this prayer for a complete reordering of life. Of course, if it remains merely something we say, it's rather empty, much like, you know, later in the psalm in verse 16, the psalmist talks about the burnt offerings that God's not pleased with. Uh, So the psalm has to be accompanied by a resolve, even if only a weak and half-hearted one, but a resolve to cooperate with God's grace and allow him to transform our lives this Lent. So, you know, eat the candy but put away the sin. Moving on from the opening, we can divide up the psalm into three main sections. The first section is verses 1 through 9. It begins with a call on God to blot out his transgressions, wash him from his iniquity, and cleanse him of his sin. Likewise, it ends in verses eight through nine with these exact same requests only in reverse, to be made clean, washed, and to have his sins blotted out. These bookends announce for us the main theme of the section, confession of sins. Notice here that God isn't mentioned much in these verses, uh, but this begins to change in the next section uh, where confession of sins decreases, and uh, the mention of God increases, or the confession of sin is replaced with God's presence. So moving on to this next section, verses 10 through 17, we see that it begins with this request, create in me a clean heart, O God. Now, we tend to associate the heart with feeling or emotion, um, but in scripture, that's more the role of the bowels or the kidneys. Uh, the heart, on the other hand, was figuratively considered uh, the seat of decision making or the home of the will and the mind. So the the psalmist is praying and asking for a, a clean heart. He's asking for a renewed mind and a renewed will. So in, in hopes of having his mind and will healed and renewed or reoriented, the psalmist makes a triple invocation of the spirit. He says, renew a right spirit within me. Then again, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Then a third time, uphold me with a willing spirit. Now, this is cool because it's similar to what the priest does at Mass. So, During Mass, the priest calls down the Holy Spirit on the bread and the wine that they might be radically changed into the body and blood of Christ. Through this prayer, we're doing something similar. We're calling on the Holy Spirit down on us that we might, in a similar way, be radically changed and made a new creation. And new creation is, is a theme we see in the other readings at Mass. Uh, so the first reading is from Genesis, and it begins, The Lord God formed man out of the clay of the ground and blew into his nostrils the breath of life, and so man became a living being. Man was created by the breath or uh, the spirit of God coming down into him. Man then sinned, as we know in sin. Sin throughout the Bible is depicted as a decreation as a decreation. It undoes the work of God in creation. It expels man from the garden. It brings about death. It turns men back into dust. It disunites people from each other and from creation. Now, the antidote to all of this is to be recreated with God. God's Spirit, and this is the very thing for which our psalmist prays: Make me a new creation. Our second reading uh, from Romans takes up the same thing of being made a new creation, but points us to the cross, and says it's from the cross that Christ makes us a new creation. So Paul, Paul contrasts the decreating effects with uh, the decreating effects of sin with the recreating effects of Christ's work on the cross, and says the decreating effects of sin is nothing compared with the, the gift offered in Christ. Then turning to our gospel, uh, we see in the gospel reading Jesus being led into the desert. He's tempted, but he remains faithful. This exemplifies the life of the new man, the new newly created man, the man with a clean heart. Uh, Jesus is Rejection of temptation; uh, it demonstrates his faithfulness and devotedness to God. And as new creation, as a new creation ourselves, we come to embody God's very own faithful love, His hesed, uh, which we see displayed in the life of Jesus. Now, returning to our psalm, the psalmist begins in verse fourteen to turn from prayers of repentance to prayers of praise, and notice God begins to be mentioned much more frequently. His literary presence in the poem signifies his real presence, the presence of his hesed in the life of the psalmist as God washes away his sins. So sin decreases and God's presence increases throughout the psalm. The psalm closes in verses 18 through 19 with what appears as an odd appeal to animal sacrifice in the temple. It might make our make us scratch our heads and wonder how can this apply to us? But there's something beautiful going on here too. So earlier up above in verse eight, the psalmist says, "Let me hear joy and gladness. The psalmist looks forward not only to forgiveness of his sins, but also to what comes with it, the ability to rejoin the worshiping community uh, to hear joy and gladness. And the psalmist now, in verses 18 through 19, prays for Zion and that God might build up the walls of Jerusalem. Rebuilding Jerusalem parallels the psalmist's forgiveness. And I think we should unpack this a little more. First, we have to recognize that there's a corporate dimension to every sin. No matter how private our sins might appear, they negatively affect not only ourselves, but others as well. Those baptized into Christ hurt the whole church by their sins. So when we turn for forgiveness, and this is the flip side of that, when we turn for forgiveness, this positively affects not only us, but in some mysterious way, it affects everyone else too. Being made right with God and neighbor, we can then join the community and praise God's merciful Hesed. And not only this, but we also recognize as we're praying for forgiveness that we're not the only ones in need of God's mercy and healing. Everywhere we see the walls of Jerusalem, so to speak, torn down by personal and institutionalized sin. And this is what St. John Paul II um, referred to when he talked about us living in a culture of death as opposed to a culture of life. So as we pray for God to rebuild tr- Jerusalem, we're, we're praying for God to uproot um, not only personal sin, but institutionalized sin too, to offer this this healing for ourselves and for for our culture. And we close our prayer in the psalm uh, with with a prayer that we may again offer right sacrifices, the best of which the psalm says is a humble mind and will turned in obedience to God. So to wrap all this up, we join the church this Lent as we journey together by God's grace on this road of repentance. And as we do so, Like the psalmist, we appeal not to our own merits, but to God's hesed. And this is what we pray for in the response to the psalm. Be merciful, O Lord, for we have sinned.